I invite you to turn to John chapter 8. If you are a guest or new with us, um, one of the things that we do at Four Oaks is part of our preaching rhythm is that we preach through books of the Bible. We preach through sections of the Bible. We're not ultimately here to, to, to gain my wisdom or anybody else who happens to, be, to preach or teach here. We stand under the authority of God's Word, and we want the Word of God to set the agenda and the trajectory for what we talk about here on Sunday mornings. And so we've been in the Gospel of John now for almost a year. We're up to, to chapter 8. And if, and if you are new, you want to know more about Four Oaks, more about what we believe, where God's leading us, how to get more involved. Reminder, we do have our Engage class coming up next Sunday night, February 18th, 5 p.m. This is an opportunity for you to, to be fed, to be provided free childcare, and to come get a download of all things Four Oaks, okay? So that's, if you have not been through our Engage class, it doesn't obligate you to membership, but it's a great opportunity to, um, to find out more. So that's next Sunday night, sign up online, or... Um, at the Connect Desk on the way back. John chapter 8, verse 21. Now I'm looking out over the sea of people this morning, and I see a lot of parents here. And we know some of you parents, particularly maybe for young kids, the smiles that, that you're wearing on your face this morning, we know are fake. We, we, we know this, okay? They're pasted on your face, because you're still recovering from some sort of battle royale on the way over to church this morning, right? Some sort of lost sock or article of clothing or somebody sat in somebody's seat or just generally kids being the sinners, little sinners that they are. Whatever the case is, undoubtedly, when your children don't listen to you the first time, every parent has their list of go-to parentisms, Right? Those things that you draw from the well, the things that your parents said to you and you vowed, I will never, never, ever, ever do say that. I will never, so it's kind of like your vow to never drive a minivan, okay? Can't beat what you get for the price, right? And so you find yourself going to these, these isms, I don't, things like, I don't want to have to repeat myself, or don't make me ask you again. You know, we would hope as parents that saying things one time to our children would be enough, okay? And it is in the Gilbert household. It's just unbelievable. It's magical. But when we have to repeat something twice, that's a signal, right? This is something serious. This is something you want to pay attention to. This is, a, this is something to, to, to make note of as a particular point of importance. And, of course, we see the same thing in Scripture. We would think that God, it would be enough that he, what he would have to say, he'd have to say it once and that would be, that'd be enough for us. No, but of course, things that are particularly important, he emphasizes again and again. So for example, in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, um, we, you know, they're repeated twice for us. There's this sense in which, hey, McFly, pay attention, right? This, this, this is crucial for your spiritual life. Jesus does the same thing in the Gospels, okay? A lot of times, right before he, he emphasizes a particularly important teaching, he will say what? Truly, truly. Or, or if some of you are still using the King James Version, and God bless your soul, okay? Verily, verily. It means amen and amen. In other words, I'm getting ready to say something super duper important. But only a few times, relatively few, 
does God say something in his word three times? Three times in succession. And when he does, it always communicates this sort of DEFCON level one of spiritual seriousness. We think about Isaiah 6. And remember, we've got to be careful not to elevate one attribute of God above another. It's not as if God is 10% love and 10% justice, and he's 100% all of those things. But yet, God reveals himself to Isaiah as what? Holy, holy, holy. A sense, and we don't have human words to really put all these things together or, conceptu- or, or conceptual thinking. It's, it's limited. But there seems to be this idea that holiness seems to sort of bind in essence all the other attributes of God together. It's, it's fundamentally who he is. And so to really get across that point to us, he says it to Isaiah three times. And here we have in our text this morning another, one of the few that we find in Scripture, another thing that Jesus repeats three times. Now remember, in this whole discourse in John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus has been teaching um, in the temple during the Feast of Booths. And primarily, he's been teaching about himself. He's been, he's been revealing himself. Remember, he, he, he talks about how um, I am the rivers of living water, or I am the light of the world. And what's interesting is that the more clarity Jesus communicates with about who he is, the more opposition, the more hostility um, that rises within the people. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? And, and, and in fact, it seems that the, the, the more clearly we see Jesus in the text, the more blinded the people are who are listening become. But this morning, Jesus shifts tax just a little bit. And he, he, he does talk about himself, but, but he wants to talk about you. And he wants to talk about me. And there's something about you and me that he communicates thrice, three times, because it's so important. He wants us to understand that what we do with this piece of information and knowledge is of crucial eternal import. What does he say? Let's stand and find out. John 8, 21 through 30. We'll flash the words on the screen for you as well. This is Jesus speaking. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will, here we go, die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He 
He has not left me alone, for I, am always, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's pray. Lord, this is a really, really hard truth to know about ourselves. But it must be really important for you to tell us three times. Lord, we pray that as we come confront this this brutal reality that we will die in our sins, that you would help us to see the hope and grace in those words, in those warnings, so that we might turn to you. Jesus, you're the only way of salvation. We want to believe that you are he, the word of life, the light of the world, the living waters, where we ask that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your seats. As you could guess by now, hopefully, the thing that Jesus says about you and me, and it's what I've been trying to get our usher team to use as their greeting for you every morning. Hello. Welcome to Four Oaks Community Church. You will die in your sins, okay? Um, They they didn't want to do that, and understandably so. We do want to unpack this, and there's three kind of Three statements of, or three categories of things we want to, to consider here. Number one, what Jesus is saying. What is he actually saying? What is he not saying? But what, what is he saying? Number two, how the Jews responded. And kind of what that tells us about ourselves, maybe. And then number three, what are we to do? In light of, of this... <laughs> disturbing pronouncement of Jesus, what are we to do? Where are we to go? What, how do we respond? So that's where we're going. So first of all, what Jesus is saying. Now, when Jesus talks about dying in your sins, he's really affirming not just what we see in the Bible, but certainly that, but he is affirming something that most major world religions affirm, most spiritualities affirm, that, that different philosophies and worldviews affirms, which, is some, which essentially is something like this, this life is not all there is. Now, we may disagree about what that is that awaits us, but the basic idea affirmed by probably most people, many people, the majority of the world, certainly, is that something happens at the end of our lives. That's, that's, it's not the end of something as much as it is the beginning of something. And that at the, this, this beginning of something is, is, whether it's called, you know, moving along or the other place or what have you, heaven, hell, there's going to be some sort of reckoning, some sort of account, some sort of something that's going to happen after we die. Now, this is not a foreign concept to the Bible. In fact, we see it everywhere. For example, Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So we're not dying twice. We're not being reincarnated. Um, we, we, are, we are not ceasing to exist once we die. In fact, there will be a judgment. 1 Peter 4, 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, back at First Presbyterian Church, Chattanooga, the Apostles' Creed, it was the quick and the dead, okay, is the way we, we talked about that. There's going to be a judgment. Now, understand something. When, when Jesus is talking like this to the Jewish people, their leaders, this is not new information. 
This is, you know, they have their Old Testament. And all over the Old Testament is this idea that God is judge and that he's coming to judge the nations in righteousness, to punish the wicked. In fact, the Jews, even as we speak, as Jesus is speaking, they were looking towards this rescue that the Messiah would provide because he would come and punish the Romans and, and pour his wrath and, and judgment out upon the nations who were punishing the people of Israel. So, so this was not a new concept. But what is maybe a new concept for them, what is, what is shocking, is that Jesus directs and applies all these truths about judgment and he turns it on them. And he says, you are the ones who are going to die in your sin and be judged. And we can imagine how this would have landed, okay? The earth-shattering kathud this would be. They're, they're the God's chosen people. They've made covenant with God. They're, they're, they're God's people who have seen God do some amazing things on their behalf, part the Red Sea and deliver them from captivity and wipe out the pagan nations in, in the promised land. And, and, and they are sort of flabbergasted by this. We're going to look at their response in a minute. But Jesus says something interesting in verse 21 that helps us understand a little bit more about what he's saying when he says they're going to die in their sin. Verse 21, he says, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Now listen, where I am going, you cannot come. Now Jesus is not just speaking about merely about the fact that one day he's going to go back to heaven and they're going to look for him in the temple and they can't find him. That's that's just a surface meaning. What what he's really getting at, this is a euphemism to communicate to them that while you're alive, folks, that's who he's preaching to, while you're alive, the light is still with you. There is still time. There is still an opportunity to turn your hearts to God, but it's a limited time. It's a, it's, it's a window that's narrowing as we speak. That, that one day you are going to die, and at that point there is no second chance. There is no opportunity. You're going to be looking for someone to save you from this judgment, and that person or that thing is not going to be there. Isn't it interesting that in a postmodern culture that looks askance at these sorts of things, talking about heaven or a literal hell that is, is conscious and full of fire and brimstone and these sorts of things. But what we really need are the words of Jesus. Who is it in the Bible that speaks most frequently, most often, and most vividly about hell? Who is that? It's a one-word answer. You only get one try, okay? Jesus. Jesus. Listen to Matthew 13, 24. talks about the fact that in hell there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth? Because people will be looking for salvation. People will be looking for deliverance. And as Jesus says, I will not be there. You will not be able to find me. Luke 16, 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
Now, let me say this. If, if, you, if you're here this morning and this is really offensive to you, you know, you're, you're, maybe you've never been in church or maybe, maybe this is fulfilling every stereotype you have of church. Well, here he goes, okay? The fire, the brimstone, next thing there'll be an altar call, the whole thing. We won't do that, I promise, okay? Maybe this is fulfilling every stereotype that you have. Maybe as a Christian, this is a, a great point of stumbling for you, of just, Pastor Paul, I, I, know what, I know what the Word says, and I know what I've been taught, but this sounds so harsh. This sounds so unloving. This sounds so unfeeling. What in the world, what do I do with this? I would say whether it's stated or unstated for all of us, and, and by the way, if this doesn't disturb you in some way, then you really haven't gotten it. Okay? If you're not kind of like underneath this, like, I mean, if you're kind of like, yeah, 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 bring it, Pastor Paul, preach it. We need to hear a little more of this. No, 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 no. There needs to be something in us that, that just is like, oh, that feels the weight of what Jesus is saying here. But a lot of times when we do struggle over this, there's kind of an unspoken question, an unspoken assumption that's sort of kind of brewing around under the surface. And it's something like this. It's something like, what in the world would warrant God doing such a thing as this? I, and sometimes you'll hear it say, I, I can never worship a God like that. I can never worship a God like that. But see, I think there's even something behind that question, and it's this. Surely, what I've done or they've done, whoever's done, is not as bad as to deserve this. Surely. I mean, I know I make mistakes and I watch a little too much TV and, you know, I, I, that, I mean, I'm not as kind and as gentle and as patient as I, as I need to be. But, but surely, whatever Jesus is saying they're guilty of here, surely, this is just overstated. Sure, come on. Because let me, let me try to, to, to get ourselves in a little different place with this emotionally just for a minute. You know, the, this last season in the, in the life of our nation, last year or two, has, has seen this, this national conversation taking place about sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, um, pe- women, children, daughters, wives being abused, being hurt, whether it's Harvey Weinstein in Hollywood or the gymnastics coach at Michigan State who was accused of abusing, abusing hundreds of gymnasts, or sadly, and we know this is true too, well-known public incidences in the church. We've been having a conversation about that, which is a good thing. But I want you to personalize this, and for some of you, this is very personal, I know. But imagine for a second this is you. Or dads, this is your daughter. Or husbands, this is your wives. Or, or wives, these are your sisters. This is someone close. This is your mom. This is, this is someone that you love and treasure dearly who's experienced this. And when they catch the perpetrator and the perpetrator is brought to trial, imagine for a second the judge saying, you know, we know that this person is guilty of these things, but they've promised, they've promised not to do them anymore. 
In fact, they acknowledged that this was probably not a good thing that they did at all. And why can't we just let bygones be bygones? Why can't we just refuse to press the matter further? Why don't, come on, there's nothing to see here. Just move along. What would you feel if you were in that place? You'd probably feel like this isn't so much about forgiveness. This is about justice. By ignoring this, by glossing it over, we are communicating something about the value and, and the worth of the people who were abused. Where this, is, this is an affront. This is something we're glossing over. It communicates we're not taking this very seriously, does it not? Guys, do you realize that what God feels towards our sin and what God feels towards your sin and my sin is infinitely greater than that. And what the reason Jesus spends so much time talking about this, and this is important, is because he loves you. Because he doesn't want you to be deceived. He doesn't want you to die in your sins. He doesn't want you to face the judgment that's going to come. Jesus wants us to wake up this morning. You know, it, it, properly understood, this truth should either just like completely offend us. And if that's your response, it's like, okay, at least you're engaging this. At least you know the implications of what Jesus is saying. Or it should tear us up. It should break our hearts. It should make us weep. It should put us on our knees as we, as we pray for those who are perishing around us. Look at how Jesus describes this. Look at verse 21 and 24 for a second. He uses this word, die in your sin, three times. But the first time he talks about sin, verse 21, in the singular, you will die in your sin. But then in verse 24, he talks about dying in your sins plural. He mentions that twice. Now, now, why is Jesus sort of making that distinction? I do think it's purposeful, by the way. Now, if I were to ask you to make a list of your top 10 sins, not that you're guilty of, of course, but that, that the culture or the world or someone out there is guilty of. I mean, we can imagine you writing down, well, Pastor Paul, there's pride and there's lust and there's hypocrisy and covetousness and adultery and gossip. I mean, these are some serious, serious sins, plural. But in a lot of ways, we know that sins, plural, are really just symptomatic of one, one foundational sin, singular. See, those, those sins, plural, are symptoms of, of the basic idea that ultimately our, our, the sin that separates us from God is fundamentally the rebellion of us against him. It's the shirking off of his authority. You know, if you've ever, if you've ever been to, to Chuck E. Cheese, and God bless your soul if you have, I hope you brought your hand sanitizer. If you've ever been to Chuck E. Cheese, you know the, 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 the whack-a-mole game, right? And so one little mole pops up, you whack it, you spend $1,000 to get three tickets in which you get a stuffed animal. It's really amazing. Anyway, so, so but what happens when you, when, you, when you hit one of those moles on the head? What happens when another pops up? See, that, that's the nature of sin, a lot of times we are, as parents 
or as church leaders or church members, we are so focused on do this, don't drink, don't have sex, don't cheat, moralism. And, and again, those things all have their places. But fundamentally, they are symptoms of a deeper disease, which is rejection of God and his authority. And we can whack them all all day. But unless we are pointing people, and parents, unless we're pointing our kids, church leaders, unless we're pointing the people in our small group or in our Bible study, unless we're, unless we're pointing them to the fundamental problem, the fundamental sin, which is, do you acknowledge God? Do you acknowledge Jesus? Is, is he your Lord? Is he the authority in your life? Because if that fundamental reality is not addressed, all the other stuff is ultimately fruitless because the fundamental sin is one of the heart. So Jesus makes this claim that what's at stake here is not your sins this morning or my sins, although they're important. The issue is our relationship with him. And that's why he says in verse 24, look there, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, how did, how did the leaders respond to this? This is our last, our last question we're asking. How did they respond? Or actually, this is our second question. How did they respond? Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? Now, one of the things that we don't get here in the original language is sort of the nuance. We, 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 don't, we don't know when you just read the English what they're really asking. Are they, are they really interested? Are they really saying, whoa, Jesus, what you just laid down on us is like a pretty big deal. Tell us more. Who are you? We want to know more about you. Is, is that the way they're asking that question? You know, Valentine's Day is coming up, ladies, and if your significant other tells you that he's leaving town on a 10-day fly fishing trip and leaving you to celebrate Valentine's with your four kids with TV dinners, what are you going to say to him, hopefully, that you can repeat here? What, what will you say? You'll say, who do you think you are, right? I hope you say something like that. Who do you think you are? That's what these leaders are saying. That, that's the tone that we don't see in the English, but it's there in the Greek. Who do you think you are? Jesus, you have, you have lost your mind. You are crazy. In fact, we're going to find out a little later in the chapter. They say, he's got a demon. This guy, has, this guy has, has lost his mind. And we see in the way they're responding two ways that I think unbelief or lack of faith or disbelief in Christ manifest themselves. Two things that I think John points out to here for, for us this morning that are obstacles to you understanding who you are in this text. Okay, there, there are two ways that, the, that Jesus speaks about them or they speak of themselves that I think can give us an understanding of why they ultimately rejected his message. And number one is their self-righteousness. Their self-righteousness. And where do we see that? Look, verse 22. The Jews responded, Will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? No, no, what do they mean there? Because the Jews believed in hell, 
conscious, eternal torment and pain for sins committed. They just didn't think they were going there. But then there was hell, and then there was this specific, horrific, extra horrific corner of hell reserved, and that's got to be really bad, right? Okay, there's hell, and then there's hell within hell. This is the hell within hell. That's reserved for whom? Those who kill themselves. And this is their way of mocking Jesus. They're, they're, where does this guy, where do you get off Jesus making claims like this? You're a sinner. You're a Galilean. You're a peasant. You've got no training. Remember they brought that one up earlier in the chapter? Who is your, who's your father, Jesus? We're the elect. We're the keepers of the, of the law. We're the chosen. We're the righteous. We're the law keepers. And the reason they are blind to Jesus, please hear this, is that they vastly overestimate themselves. Because they don't know who they truly are, because they don't know their true need and their true desperation, they can't see their need for Jesus. Guys, if your estimation of yourself is that your sin is itty-bitty, I've just got a little sin in my life, just itty-bitty, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm imperfect, but I'm not broken. I, I can be rehabbed. I'm rehabilitatable. If your, if your view of yourself is itty bitty sin, then Jesus for you is going to be itty bitty, itty bitty need for sin, itty bitty need for a savior. Flannery O'Connor puts it this way. There was already a deep black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. You see, they could not recognize what Jesus was saying because they could not, would not look at their own hearts. They were self-righteous. This is why Jesus is constantly saying things like, I didn't come for the righteous. You guys make your own way. Who did I come for? Sinners. What does, he tell, what does he tell them? Hey, you know, Pharisees, it's the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners who are entering the kingdom ahead of you. See, they're, they're, there's this constant appeal to, I, I didn't come, the doctor doesn't come to, to, to help the, the well. He comes to help the sick. See, we, if you don't feel your need for Jesus this morning, if I don't feel my need for Jesus this morning, it's because I vastly overestimated the condition of my own soul. But we are broken and we are sinful and we pray that God will open our eyes to it. So one, they were self-righteous. Number two, they were worldly. Again, look at how Jesus describes them. Verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world I am not of this world. This, the word world, John uses very frequently in this gospel, and he, but, he, but he means different things different times. So sometimes he'll use the world, and it's like the geospatial, geographical reality of the world, a place. Sometimes he'll use the world as it relates to people. So John 3, 16, for God so loved the what? The world. He's talking about people there. Sometimes he'll talk about the world in terms of God's creation. 
the good things that God has given us, like family and friends and food and drink and recreation and nature. That's not what John means here when he, tell, when he says that they are of the world. The word he uses is cosmos. It literally means system of thought, value system, a worldview that sets itself up in opposition against God. It deposes God and elevates man and puts him on the throne. It puts man at the center of his own life, the captain of his own ship, the master of his own destiny, however you want to put it. It puts an ism in the place of theism. And you could pick your ism. Atheism, humanism, nihilism, communism, fascism. And so I thought it would be a good time talking about all these isms to quote that great church leader and philosopher of the 80s, Ferris Bueller. Listen to what he says, okay? Not, now, this is important. Not that I condone fascism or any ism for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in an ism. He should believe in himself. I quote John Lennon, I don't believe in the Beatles, I just believe in me. Good point there. After all, he was the walrus. Okay. What's the problem with that? And by the way, guys, our culture would be right at home there, right? I don't believe in an ism. I don't believe in a religion. I'm spiritual but not religious. I, I, I just believe in me. The power of autonomous choice and living. Interesting, he mentions the walrus. Walrus is actually, not time to get into this this morning, it relates back to Eastern thought. I believe in me, what is that? That's an ism, isn't it? It's, it's seeped in spiritualism and Hinduism. This idea that truth is within that, that, that I don't need anything but myself. That is an ism. And understand, no matter how popular that is, no matter how attractive that is, Jesus says that ism will send you to hell. Understand, we're not just picking on that ism. There's a lot of isms. thing is, we're all searching for an ism, aren't we? We're all searching for some kind of salvation, we're, we're searching for some sort of, of Messiah. We're searching for, for something that will save us, even as Christians, are we not? Whether it's sports or recreation or money or travel or sex or, or our health. There's another ism for you. Holisticism, what is that? The belief that I have ultimate control of my body and my well-being. If I eat the right things, take the right medicines, or not take the right medicines, or if I don't take vaccines, or if I take vaccines, and, and understand something, if I take vitamins, I don't take vitamins, all of that is your business before God. Romans 14 says, we all stand before God in our choices before him. But let's not forget something, folks. wherever you land on that, and that all that has value, but that value is limited. Paul says, physical training has what? some value. But training for godliness has value for not just this age, but for the next life. Why does Paul say holisticism has some value, but not eternal value? It's a really easy answer, because you're going to die. You're going to die. 
No, no matter if you take the right things or do the right things, and, and when our idols disappoint us, when you feel like I've been doing this, this regimen and this thing my whole life, and all of a sudden I've got this incurable disease, oh my gosh, it's failed me, my idol has let me down. That's what idols do. That's why Jesus says, place your hope in me. That brings us to our last point, what we are to do what we are to do. Because we, we, we've seen this in the Gospel of John over and over again, that this idea that man is not able to save himself. Right? John six forty four. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 3, you can't even see the kingdom. can't even see it unless you're born again. And so in, in, in a good God is sovereign kind of church theology here at Four Oaks, we're all, yes, yes, amen, all the way, preach it, yes, let's do that. But isn't it interesting, of all the gospel writers, not only is John the one who, who holds up most clearly the sovereignty of God, but he's also the one who most clearly holds up the responsibility of man. That ultimately, at the end of the day, every person in here, every person in the world is responsible for their sin. That's why Jesus says, look back at verse 24, I told you, you would die in your sins. Unless, unless. Now, one of the things that you kind of get from Jesus' teaching here is this idea that we're going to die in our sins, or these leaders are going to die in their sins. It's almost like he's speaking as if it's almost a certainty. It's a fait accompli. In fact, in the Greek, it's this idea that, that you're as good as dead, you're as good as dying in your sins. But verse 24, and I think maybe the most encouraging word in this whole text is verse 24, where it says, unless... Unless, because the reality is, is that Jesus has not returned. The reality is that you are still alive today. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed five minutes from now. But today, you are here. In that day, these religious leaders were there, and Jesus is appealing to them. The, the, light, is, the light is still shining the darkness has not overcome it. We're going to look at this next week. Some of them actually did believe. But what Jesus wants to lay on us this morning, for Oaks, is that at the end of our life, when we die, someone is paying for our sins. The question is, who? John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Someone will absorb the wrath of God. Either you or the Son of God who died for you. And that's why Jesus said, you must believe that I am he. Isaiah 43.10, where this is drawn from, I think, says this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Do you see what Jesus is claiming here? 
Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. He's just saying only God can save you this morning, Four Oaks. And the only way he can save you is through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know this man? Have you turned your heart and your faith to him? Because there's still light. There's still light. Some of you... Some of you need a dose of unless this morning. You need a little bit of unless theology. Pastor Paul, if you just knew about my kids and my marriage, and it is so hopeless and it is so dark. Unless, unless the Lord shines the light of his truth into your heart. Today, turn to him. 